Hello, everyone. My name is Sherry Rice, and I am CEO of Access to Healthcare Network. Welcome to our podcast, Access to Health. Our goal is to bring you informative speakers from the healthcare industry to give you information that can help you make your healthcare decisions. Today, we are talking about cultural affirming practices for sexual orientation and gender identity data, better known as SOGI. And my guests are Dr. Jennifer Bennett, Director of Nevada AIDS Education and Training Center at the University of Nevada, Reno, Reno School of Medicine, and Mary Carls, MPH and Program Director. Welcome, ladies. Thank you. Thank you. Collecting sexual orientation and gender identity data requires that we understand the terms related to sexual orientation and gender identity, and that's what we will be discussing today. First, I looked up some interesting data about sexual orientation and gender identity, and it made me realize that this is not uh, an old topic. This is a new one that we're about to talk about today because some of the information that I looked up really surprised me. For instance, the term transgender was introduced in English in 1949. That was, what, 50, 60, 70 years ago? That wasn't so long ago. In 2016, Oregon became the first state to legally recognize the term non-binary people. Interesting. That was, what, three years ago? The first transgender surgery was in May of 1989, again, not very long ago. Transgender legal victory was in April of 2016 when the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled in favor of transgender male student Gavin Grimm, which marked the first ruling by an appeals court to find that transgender students are protected under federal laws, again, not so long ago. The term transgender was actually coined in 1966, but again, it was introduced in English in 1949. According to a 2014 behavioral risk factor surveillance system, 1.4 million adult individuals identify as transgender. I felt it was important to have those facts and to say it before we got in our to, into our discussion because it makes one realize who isn't involved in this topic, either in a personal way or in a professional way, to understand that what we're talking about today is reasonably new. So the next question seems really important and also a setting for what we're about to talk about is, why SOGI? Why did you start this training that you do for professional people in the medical community, and why did you feel it was so important now? Mary, can you can you start with that? Sure. Um, the, I would answer that question twofold. I think, um, technically speaking, as far as bus the business end of things, um, the federal government is, is requiring through the UDS system that um, starting in 2016, they will be asking um, SOGI questions. And there are specific three questions around that, which is asking somebody um, to share their um, biological sex, which is the sex that they were born with, or um, which was given to them at the time of birth that's on their birth certificate. And then there's also um, what sex you identify with, which could be very um, different to what that individual's biological sex is as well as um, your gender um, identity, which again is different because that is um, somebody's identifier, who they are inside, which again could be something different. Um, and again, with that, I would just add sexual orientation. So when you started explaining about SOGI, you said the federal government is going to be asking 
questions, where will they be asking these? Oh, sure. Um, so this is through HRSA funding. So um, in particular, so say, for example, around the HIV care community working in Ryan White. So um, the government for federal funding purposes, as well as to um, collect data that really we all share our data to the government as far as identifying dispar disparities and gaps in care. And in particular, it has been a raised concern in the LGBT community that because there is such a um, stigma around that community, they don't feel comfortable identifying. And as such, they're um, subjected to more health disparities. So they will have a so, choice on whether they answer those questions. Yes, they do have a choice to answer those questions. Um, however, it is something where... Um, more and more clinics and providers are being asked to collect that information, not only for reporting purposes, but it's a higher standard of care, um, right, to understand your patient, to understand that whole person, and to give them the mm -hmm. optimal care that's needed. So so let's go back to Soji. You all do a training, and I've, I've been through part of your training. It was, um, uh, it was excellent, and it was overwhelming for me. And today we are going to literally, in a way, be doing part of your training. We're going to be talking about the terminology. But let's go back to Soji for a minute. Um, you started this training, of course, to broaden our perspectives and to have better understanding. Who do you give the training to mostly? Um, we mostly give it to, um, so we're part of the AIDS Education and Training Center. So um, our focus is to educate HIV providers and healthcare um, employees and staff um, who provide care to HIV patients. So um, in particular, we provide that training to those healthcare professionals. Well, I think that's fabulous. You know, Access to Healthcare Network um, has been a part of the Ryan White HIV program for the state of Nevada for almost a decade. Yes. We have. And, and things have changed so dramatically. Uh, in fact, I'm doing a podcast in a few weeks uh, with an HIV client and with um, someone from the southern Nevada area on someone over 55. Sad because when I f did the first the first broadcast was with someone that was HIV positive, but they were younger. And it's very clear that the generational gap is there in the sense of what they've lived through. So mm -hmm. I wanted to do one with somebody, say 60, who's lived through the entire HIV or most of it epidemic and how they feel about how things are now. But to get back to your training, I thought mm -hmm. it was absolutely excellent. The other thing you say in the training is make this a possibility zone. Jennifer, um, Stay open to new perspectives. That's something that you really stress in the mm -hmm. training. Uh, why do you think that's so important? I guess going back to the reason why this training is so important is that um, this is new information for a lot of people. It's, um, you know, talking about sexual orientation and gender identity is new and can be uncomfortable for, for a lot of people. And it's really, really important that providers especially are able to talk about these things with their patients at a with a level of comfort, um, which gives the patient comfort and makes them more comfortable discussing it with their provider. Well, and we're going to uh, discuss in another taping later on about 
primary care doctors or specialists and how that office uh, can be educated better and how they treat their clients. Um, when we say stay in a possibility zone, practice vulnerability, you say, which mm -hmm. I think is very important because in the training I was in, we were all together in this training. It's not like I was having a one-on-one. -on -one. So therefore, you're looking at your other staff and people and discussing terms that maybe you haven't discussed anymore. How do you create that kind of atmosphere in your training, Mary? Um, we, we try really hard, as, as we mentioned, we, um, that's part of our group agreements that we open up the training with. So we really stri strive to um, begin to get the energy of just a very open, safe environment, realizing that these terms are very new to, um, to folks who are working in the arena. Some, some people, it's not so new. However, they do have questions. And um, one other caveat I would say to that is in employee trainings, too, um, it, you really want to make it a even in, even um, sharing space. So whether the CEO is there and the front desk receptionist there, everybody feels comfortable sharing their perspectives. And it's okay to come out and ask a question and um, not be sure. And so we just really try to um, open up to people and try to make that um, that experience happen. Well, you did a great job with that. Thank you. Yeah, I think we had probably 40, 45, maybe 50 people in the room, mm -hmm. and you did mm -hmm. a great job with creating that kind of space because it's it, it really can be maybe a little uncomfortable to be talking about certain things in a group like that. You wanted to add something, Jennifer? Yeah, just that <clears throat> to add on to what Mary said, I think part of part of what we try to encourage is a really interactive atmosphere. Um, we really try to have people asking questions because, again, this is new information. Um, we don't have all the answers. Um, oftentimes, uh, someone in the room has more answers than we do or, a, or a, even a better answer than we do. And so I think part of creating that, that open space is, is recognizing uh, the different knowledge in the room, the different expertise, and, and also the fact that that we all have questions, you know, and that's perfectly okay. Well, different generations. Uh, certainly, yeah. certainly. I mean, I'm 70 mm -hmm. years old. My generation is very different than yeah. someone sitting there who's 30. Yeah, and right. that was, I think, very apparent mm -hmm. and certainly apparent for me to realize that. Mm -hmm. Let's get into some of the terms so that we have enough time to go over these because I think that's important uh, for people to know. Uh, some people think, well, my goodness, why do we have so many terms? Why do we need a term for that or a term for this? And we'll probably get into that a little bit when we talk about the terms. But let's start with the basics. What is sexual orientation? Jennifer? Um, sure. Sexual orientation is, um, is how a person identifies their feelings of attraction um, for another person. So sexual orientation can be, um, you can be attracted to someone of the same, the same sex as yourself or someone opposite or kind of everyone in between. So sexual orientation is who I would want to have sex with? Um, yes, in one sense. Um, some people would, um, would describe sexual orientation as kind of bigger than that, as um, just maybe my feelings of attraction or my romantic feelings or even just an emotional connection. Okay. Um, 
a person may be attracted to people of the same sex, to those of the opposite sex, to those of both sexes, or without reference to sex or gender. Some people do not experience primary sexual attraction and identify as asexual. Let's talk about asexual. Um, yeah, asexual is just someone who doesn't identify as um, really having um, an attraction to, uh, a sexual attraction to other people. Okay, and so that person is asexual means no sex. You're not having sex. Well, that would be, um, that's that's up to the individual person. Someone may identify as asexual um, and they they still may have sex. It's really, with all of these terms, I think what's really important to keep in mind is that it's it's how that person identifies. And so it's not up to it's not up to us to label someone else. And so um, how that person identifies their sexual orientation, actually we have to look at it differently from the sexual behaviors that they that they have. Well, that's interesting you should say that because I think I'm trying to put it in a box. Exactly. I think I just did that. I think I tried to put it in a box with a neat bow. Yeah. And what you're saying to me is you can't do that because it's not about me. Right. Unless I was identifying as asexual, it's not about me. So if someone says that they're asexual, I need to just understand that that's how they identify. Right. Is that mm-hmm. that pretty much what you're saying to yes. me? Yes, <laughs> and and it's and it's it's a really good fine point, but especially when we're talking with the provider community, then it's really up to the provider to recognize that even when someone identifies as asexual, um, they still need to ask about their sexual behaviors. Got it. So biological sex. Tell me what that is. Mary. I can, I can explain that. <laughs> um, so biological sex is simply um, the biological um, that our bodies are made up of. Um, so our chromosomes are whether male, female, but um, our biological sex is what is typically marked on our birth certificate when you're born. So uh, typically right now on the um, birth certificate, it's binary, so male, female. So there are some states who also recognize um, intersex as well. But usually um, the biological sex is typically determined by sight when the baby is born, just looking at the genital area, whether they have a penis or a vagina. Um, and then that, of course, is you know confirmed by chromosomes and that sort of thing. Um, some intersex... Um, Explain intersex, would you mean? So intersex is is an infant that or a newborn who is born with where maybe it's not as clear-cut or black and white um, whether they're a male or female so maybe their genital area isn't quite as clearly a penis or a vagina maybe their chromosomes have one extra x or one extra y or maybe it's not super clear Um, so then um, as i said not all states but some states will recognize that and label that i intersex so biological sex is not, for instance, sexual orientation becomes somebody's choice. I mean, how they want to express that. But biological sex is not a choice. No. It's, it's literally what you're born with. It's, what, it's the, the biological makeup of your body that you are born with. Okay, yes. Jennifer? I just need to correct you um, yes. on mentioning that sexual orientation is a choice. 
Okay, um, correct me all you want in this yeah. because I'm I'm uh, winging it here. Yeah, so sexual orientation is not a choice either. Sexual orientation um, is who you are attracted to, and that's who you are attracted to. So it's not necessarily a choice. Okay. Um, got it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so going back to biological sex, so that's not a choice. No, no, that's not a choice. And then that's documented on your birth certificate. So, and um, we go into um, move into gender identity. And that's where sometimes individuals may not agree with the biological sex that is um, on their birth certificate, for example. Yeah, it's, I'm reading right off what you give in the class, a person's mm -hmm. deep-seated internal sense of who they are as a gendered being, specifically the gender which, which they identify themselves, which may not be their biological sex. Exactly. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, let's talk about transgender. That's a term that I think has become uh, more common in our society, probably in the last decade. Uh, people mm -hmm. literally say the word. They are starting to understand uh, what transgender is and uh, be able to um, understand somebody who's transgender. But let's get down to the basics of actually what it means, if you don't mind. Mm -hmm. Jennifer? Sure. So a transgender individual is someone who identifies as um their, that deep-seated internal sense of who they are, their gender identity, does not necessarily match um, their, the gender marker given to them or assigned to them on their birth certificate. Okay. And that can manifest itself with either male or female. Correct. And um, it's an adjective to describe uh, that does not match. When we get what is transsexual? So transsexual is a term that is um, kind of out of date. It's um, transsexual is a term that was used, <clears throat> excuse me, um, I don't know, maybe in the last 15 or 20 years um, to identify. I think it's really kind of the same term, but it's not as politically correct anymore, transsexual. Um, okay. It really meant transgender, but transgender is the more current term. Got it. Good to know. Good to know. So somebody is has their biological sex, um, but their sexual orientation. Let's talk about that with transgender. If if my biological sex is female, and I feel um, it doesn't match for me, that what matches for me is a male. Where does sexual orientation fit into that, Mary? So. Sexual orientation with transgender is very different. So transgender, as you just explained, is um, speaking to your identity as a gender being, where your sexual orientation is who you're sexually attracted to. So you could be, so you, you're biologically a woman, you identify as a man, but biologically as a woman, you're attracted to men. So even though you're identifying as a man, now you can um, now you can understand one complication of a transgender individual because now you put yourself into um, an outward expression of being a gay man, which is also 
can be stigmatized as being transgender. Does so, that make sense? Yes, that okay. does. That does make okay. sense. I think my my mind is going to how difficult this must be for a child, yeah. and how difficult it must be for families um, with a child. Is mm-hmm. uh, can you speak to that, either Jennifer or Mary, about how does um, how do you cope with that as a family, uh, a loving family? Um, Well, I can speak to just really just experiences from other transgender um, advocates who have spoken about their experiences. And as far as um, a positive transition, a lot of love and support from your family, a lot of communication, a lot of um, reaching out to community resources or any information that can um, support you through that journey, through your child's journey and what they need to still continue because they're, they're still an individual. They're a strong human being. This is just as they identify. So um, I think it's a mistake to just assume that it's um, one, there's a couple of assumptions that with transgender um, individuals, there's a sexual orientation that goes along with that. And that's not necessarily true. For some um, transgender individuals, it can be a very long time before they even start exploring their sexual orientation. Because as I mentioned, that's a whole other layer. They're just trying to um, explore their journey as this this gender identity that they truly believe who they are, which is a different path for everybody. So um, it, it just, I guess the short answer of that is I would just say to a family to just be open, as we say in our class, be vulnerable, talk to your child and um, any questions or anything, um, areas that you don't feel comfortable about, try to seek out information and educate yourself. Well, I think the pictures that we're painting here, some, is how complicated this is and yes. how complex, but also how important it is um, in this society today, how important it is. Jennifer? Yeah, I just wanted to add that, you know, being that the family is that child's kind of primary social support, you know, that family is is so integral in the, the growth and development of that child, that if that if that individual, really at whatever age that that person is is transitioning or, or talking about it or initiating that change, um, so many people um, who are going through that, you know, who are identifying as transgender, it's it's quite a process, right? It's a very it's a very um, uh, stressful, challenging time for that individual and for the family, and it's and it's vital that they have that social support of the family, and and oftentimes they don't. And um, one of the I think greatest health disparities facing people who identify as transgender is the fact that they have not been accepted by that family unit, and so that leads to all kinds of other other health issues for that individual. And we're going to get to into that into the next show. Let's go back to some of the terms. Cisgender, what does that mean? Mary? So 
cisgender um, just uh, kind of speaks to cis meaning same, so same gender. So if somebody is cisgender, it means that they identify um, with the gender that they were given, um, their biological marker gender. So I was born, uh, my birth certificate says that I'm a woman. I identify as a woman. So I am, um, my, my gender identity identity is the same as my biological gender, cisgender. But that doesn't mean your sexual orientation. Right. That's same. a whole different That's a whole, that's different, a whole discussion. different discussion. Okay. Yes. So cisgender as I was born a woman and I identify as a woman, but my yes. sexual orientation could be could be very different. It could be very different. Okay. Yes. And what is uh, what is the definition for bisexual? So for bisexual, that is a sexual orientation term that does not refer to a gender identity. And bisexual is essentially they're attracted to both male and female, typically. And that would be their sexual that, orientation. That would be their sexual orientation. Okay. A new term for me was gender non-conforming. And uh, this one was a little confusing for me. Do you think, Jennifer, you can clear that up? Sure. So let me take a step back. Um, so just to kind of um, give the bigger picture, when we're talking about sexual orientation and gender identity, um, those are two completely separate conversations, two completely separate um, issues or identities for, for all of us. We all have a sexual orientation. We all have a biological sex. We all have a gender identity. Um, and we also all have a gender expression. Gender expression is how we present ourselves to the world. Um, the, in, what, how, how we present ourselves to the world in, in, as, a, as a gender, in our gendered way. How do we present ourselves to the world? And so gender expression is, is again, another conversation completely separate from sexual orientation and gender identity and biological sex. Give me an example so, of gender expression, if you would. So gender expression is, um, let's let's take a, an extreme example of gender expression. So um, my gender expression, so I'm, I identify as my gender as female, um, and I express myself in a very feminine way. I dress in a very feminine way, um, maybe I dress all in pink, you know, with flowers and whatever. I drive a pink car. I don't know. It's it's a, I exp I'm expressing myself in a very feminine way. Um, whereas, you know, kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum, um, I am I'm expressing myself in a very masculine way. Um, you know, somebody, you know, um, I don't know. You know, maybe it's a um, you know leather jackets and you know gold chains. I don't know, however you, however you want to describe sure, kind sure. of the, a, a very, um, a very masculine presentation. Which could be gender non-conforming because one would assume if you're female that you would dress in a certain way. Is that what I'm hearing? Well, I'm just kind of setting up the, oh, okay. the I'll be quiet kind then. of, no, Go no, right it's ahead. all good. No, the, the continuum of what gender expression is, you know, that you, that we all have 
you know, gender expression is more of a choice, right? This is how we are presenting ourselves to the world. And so you can choose to present yourself in a very feminine way. You can choose to present yourself in a very masculine way, regardless of your uh, gender identity, regardless of your biological sex. Um, and so um, gender nonconforming that you had asked about is someone who um, does not express themselves to the world in the way that the world might expect. That's gender nonconforming. And so if I am, uh, if, I if I identify as a, as a female and I present myself to the world in a more masculine way or in maybe a more androgynous presentation, that's gender nonconforming. Does that make sense? Sure. I'm, okay. I'm thinking about uh, probably a decade ago, a friend of mine, uh, it wasn't here locally, introduced me to a gentleman who by day he was a banker in a suit, and when he came to dinner with us, he was in a dress. But he's married and has children. Okay. Is that gender nonconforming? Yes. I would, I would probably say that it is, um, depending on... Again, going back to that individual's um, um, description of themselves. So right. that person may identify as transgender, um, but doesn't actually, um, but conforms to society's expectations during the day. But maybe that person, if that person is a male and actually views himself as a female, but doesn't feel comfortable dressing in that way during his day job. Understand. Mary, can you understand why this is a little confusing <laughs> for people? Is there? Yes. I mean, I, definitely. Uh, you know, and it brings up so much for us, and people want to be respectful, and it brings up a lot of issues for people uh, where they may look like they're not respecting the information. Mm -hmm. But they are because they're doing their own personal journey on this. Right. Mm -hmm. So gender nonconforming. Um, cisgender people may also be gender nonconforming. Yes. So gender nonconforming, again, it's, it's a separate continuum. It has nothing to do. This is, again, um, gender expression, I said, should say, has nothing to do with sexual orientation um, or biological sex. And not all transgender people are gender nonconforming. Absolutely. And not all gender nonconforming people are transgender. So an example of a transgender person who is uh, gender nonconforming, can someone give me an example of that? I'm assuming that people that are listening are wrapping their heads around this like I am. So I'm asking a lot of the questions that they would probably ask. An example of a transgender person who's gender nonconforming, it, it, I was born, my biological sex is a woman, I identify as a man, how, mm -hmm. and I'm gender nonconforming. Right. So if your gender identity is as a man, so you're, you said someone with a biological sex female, but identifies as a man, so I ident would identify as a transgender individual, but, but gender identity would be male. Um, and so gender nonconforming means that that person, again, this is kind of the third level, is gender expression. So how does that person present themselves to the world? In a, it, for this person, it could be anything that's not 
what society expects of a male to present themselves. So gender nonconforming could be, it could mean that that person identifies themselves in an androgynous way, or it could mean that that person identifies themselves, or I'm sorry, expresses themselves in a feminine way. Okay, because it goes on to say, uh, a person whose gender expression is perceived as being inconsistent with cultural norms expected of that gender. Little girls should be in dresses, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Specifically, mm-hmm. boys and men are not masculine enough for a feminine, uh, or are feminine girls and women, they're not feminine enough. So literally, um, that conforming gender piece, we could spend five hours on a podcast on what that has done for people. Uh practically since we've been on this earth. I mean, and you just look at the Me Too movement and you've got a whole nother dialogue mm-hmm. on how women are supposed to behave. Mm-hmm. And if they're gender non-conforming into whatever person's box that says mm-hmm. that's what gender conforming is, then we can pay a price for that. Mm-hmm. Did I articulate that? Okay. Yes. Oh, God. That's fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> so let me go on to a few other terms. Um that we maybe haven't got. What's gender binary? What is binary? Jennifer. I think Jennifer can. So gender binary is really just the concept that um, we have men and women, and that's all. And, you know, what we're learning in, uh, you know, as you had said over the last, you know, probably 100 years or so, that, that that's not necessarily true, you know, that we have people identifying of um, all different um, all different genders, you know, transgender, and, and there's a lot of things in between. Um, so binary, how does someone identify themselves as that? that? That seems like a new term, gender binary, in the last probably couple of decades. So they say I'm gender binary, then what would that mean to a person's, uh, how they express themselves in society? So let me clarify, um, gender binary is not a, some way that, that people identify. Gender binary is, is just a term that we have um, to describe the um, kind of the theory, I guess, that there are two genders and two genders only. Oh, okay. So somebody does not then refer to themselves as gender binary. Correct. Okay. Got it. Um, we've talked about gender nonconforming. We talked about cisgender, um, transgender. We've talked about that. And let's talk a little bit about gender, gender neutral language, because that's one of the things that for us at Access to Healthcare, and especially in the Ryan White program, have become very conscious of. Um, when someone presents themselves and uh, needs some sort of support from us as to how they identify themselves, we usually make that, or have in the past, made that assumption off how they look. Mm -hmm. And so now uh, asking for identity is a different conversation. Mary, how do you suggest people do that? Well, I think... um in the healthcare setting as well, when um, we're trying to have the more neutral language, I think again, um, it just goes back to that individual. So maybe um, for sure putting aside the biases of somebody, how they appear, but um, 
you know, asking somebody, what is your name? Um, just treating that, trying to avoid putting them in a box in the conversation. Does that make sense? Well, we actually really ask what how... pronoun would you like to use? Oh, yes. I mean, we, which we're going to get to in the next taping, but uh, literally this um, ability to have gender-neutral language mm -hmm. so that we're not, would that be not just having male and female on a questionnaire? Yes. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about the government asking for more data, that means that questionnaires are going to have quite a few terms on it. Is that what I'm understanding, Jennifer? Uh, yes. Um, I think that when you're when we're talking about the, the data that HRSA is interested in collecting, um, yes, they will there are far more, um, with lack of a better term, far more boxes to check than just male and female, for instance, on gender identity. Um, again, there are the three SOGI questions that they're going to be asking. That's the biological sex or sex sex identified at birth, uh, gender identity, um, which will have far more options. That's how I identify inside. And then sexual orientation is the third, the third of those. Um, but gender, when you're talking about gender neutral language, it goes actually beyond those questions. Um, gender neutral language is really um, how we encourage clinics and, and really individuals. We, we all need to kind of adopt this gender neutral language. And, and what it is, is it's just, it allows, um, it allows us to, to really communicate with everyone and be respectful of everyone, um, regardless of, of pronouns and, and, and kind of gender identifying language. Um, and so if we can all kind of adopt more gender neutral language in our, particularly in a healthcare setting, um, that's going to make everyone feel more comfortable in that setting. Well, and, and that's a shift for people. We know yes. that's a huge shift. Is your, so the training that you do, the SOGI training that you do, are, is that being offered to providers' offices and to their staff? We're happy to come um, and present our training wherever anybody wants to have it. Primarily, um, you know, healthcare settings is our is our target audience. Okay, so is gender neutral that if I said um, Mary's coming over, she will be here at two thirty. Mary, no. am I? That's not gender neutral. No, that's not gender neutral. So, so what, you what could should just I say, say? Mary's coming over. Mary will be here, or Mary will be here at ten thirty. Okay, simply. Um, the next thing I have on here, which seems appropriate at about this time, is the word questioning. <laughs> Not only self-questioning, but questioning this entire um, new, new experience that we have of identity and understanding it. And someone who has identified from birth as one sex and that that's also their sexual orientation uh, this, I think, could be very difficult for some people, especially about their age. Have you noticed that in your trainings? Yeah, we talked at the at the beginning of the podcast about, you know, this this conversation is is challenging. It's new for people. And certainly, you know, it seems this is anecdotal, but it seems like our younger uh, generations are are 
exposed to this a little bit more. I think it's more accepted. It's becoming more accepted in our communities. And so our younger people are growing up with, you know, having friends who identify as gay, friends who identify as transgender. And so it's it's not necessarily as steep a learning curve for younger people um, as it is for some of our older generations who who didn't grow up with this as part of their world. Yeah, who wouldn't even understand why it's needed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They really wouldn't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, we've had male and female, we've had gay and lesbian, and don't understand why there needs to be anything more. Um, I can mm-hmm. say that for my mm-hmm. generation, yeah. and quite a few of them, yeah. that they're, I don't know if the word stuck, but that's that's what they've experienced their whole life. And right. some of my generation thinks it's um, uh, outstanding that they even acknowledge gay and lesbian, <laughs> let alone moving into some of the other topics. Do you uh, ever consider giving your SOGI training to the public, opening it up and offering it? You know, um, I would love to see it offered. We're federally funded through HRSA, and our grant funding is primarily targeting healthcare providers. So um, perhaps we can train some other community folks who can take this out to the community. Oh, that would be interesting, wouldn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if somebody wanted to talk with you further, is that possible? And where would they get a hold of you, Jennifer? Absolutely. We are happy to talk with anyone who has um, an interest in this in this subject matter. So let's talk about if somebody wanted to get a hold of you, wanted to ask some questions, or maybe a provider's office wanted to have you do a training. Where would they get a hold of you, Mary? Um, they can get our contact information at our website. That website is med.unr.edu backslash N-A-E-T-C. Okay. Well, ladies, I want to thank you for such valuable information. Uh, I think this has been wonderful. We've been talking about cultural affirming practices for sexual orientation and gender identity data and SOGI and the training that is done here locally. My guests have been Dr. Jennifer Bennett, Director of Nevada AIDS Education and Training Center, UNR Reno School of Medicine, and Mary Carls, MPH and Program Manager. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. For a list of future podcasts, go to accesstohealthcare.org slash podcast. There will be a second taping on this, and it will discuss uh, physicians' offices and how we can have more gender-neutral conversations. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.